1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18, and then Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So just with those 1 Thessalonians 5 verses in our minds, the question, what is God's will for my life? It's one of the biggest questions any of us can ask about our lives. The Harrison and Wallace families have been grappling with that in recent months. Yes, God's will for them, they believe, is to serve him overseas. For others, what is God's will for my life? When I was in my early 20s, it was a huge question. Me and my friends were asking, what is God's will and how do we find out what it is? And for us, the the phrase understanding God's will basically meant somehow knowing the details of life before they happened. So where should I live? What job should I do? Should I get married? If so, to who? What church should I go to? There was and is a big industry out there that claims to help us answer those questions, whether that's books or conferences or podcasts or blogs. And I remember asking the question of an older pastor of mine, so what is God's will for my life? And with a bit of a smile, he took me to these three verses in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, you want to know what God's will for your life is, Richard? Well, here it is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's a powerful set of commands, actually. What I remember was, it felt like no help at all. (laughs) So it didn't seem to answer the questions I had. But you see, when the Apostle Paul wrote those words to a group of Christians living in Thessalonica around the year 50 AD, that's in modern-day Greece, he uses that phrase, God's will for you in Christ Jesus, quite differently to how we often use it today. See, for Paul here, knowing God's will is less about knowing the specific details of your life. It's more about living the life Jesus has rescued you to live. It's more about living life the way it was meant to be lived in dependence on God and asking God to help you live that way by the power of his spirit in you. See, theologians over the centuries have tried to distinguish the different ways Christians talk about God's will for us. So one of the ways they they do that is they distinguish between God's revealed will and God's secret will. A little bit of theology for us here, but this is fine. So God's revealed will theologians say that's basically what God has revealed to us in his word, the Bible. For example, who God is, what Jesus has done for us, how we should live now. But God's secret will, 
It's called that because it's what God hasn't revealed directly to us in his word, the Bible. So for example, the questions I was asking and my friends were asking, where should I live? What job should I do? Should I get married? See, a lot of the questions we have in our minds, we think, what's God's will for my life? They're actually to do with God's secret will. So in the Bible, God doesn't tell us where we should live or what job we should do or whether we should get married. Those are decisions he calls on us to make for ourselves in dependence on him praying to him for wisdom all the way. But see, when Paul talks about God's will in 1 Thessalonians here, he's talking about God's revealed will. He's describing how people saved by Jesus should live their lives now for Jesus. So my old pastor was being a bit cheeky with me when he brought those verses to my attention, but in one sense, he was helping me to get beyond what was a really quite a self-centered way of thinking about God's will. God's will for your life isn't just about God answering all of your burning questions. God's will for your life is about you living in close relationship with him and asking him to enable you to live life in this world the way you were always meant to live it, the way Jesus died and rose again in order to help you live. So in that sense, God's will for all of us, if we're Christians, is the same. 1 Thessalonians 5, it is to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. I don't know if those are phrases that would be in your mind when you think, what is God's will for my life? But again, you look at the way Paul frames it. He's basically saying this is not just optional. It's not secondary or something you do occasionally. No, these commands stand at the very heart of the Christian life. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So how are we meant to understand these three commands? What are we meant to do with them in our lives as individuals and as a church family on mission together? So the plan for the next few weeks, usually at Avenue, we work our way through bits of the Bible in sequence. This time we're going to spend three weeks in three verses. So that's a bit of a change of pace for us. But to help us, we're going to often look at other passages to help us understand what Paul is saying here. There's going to be a slightly topical feel to where we're going. But I hope this is going to help us in thinking through what God's great purposes for us are in Christ. And as we begin looking at these three commands, I want to see two things. The first is this. These are life-giving, grace-filled commands. Again, I don't know how you feel when you look at those, but you're actually not meant to feel crushed by them. You're not meant to feel, oh, this is something else I've got to do, or I just feel guilty because I'm not rejoicing enough. Actually, these are life-giving commands. They're invitations to us to draw near to the Lord Jesus and learn from him in these areas. And the second thing is that all three commands, they presume that the Lord is near to us and he's doing good things in our lives. And actually, that's funny because we often forget that. We go, well, maybe God did things in those people's lives in the Bible, or maybe God does things in other people's lives, but the details of my lives feel pretty inconsequential. They're not that important. But actually, no, Paul is saying God's will for you in Christ Jesus is to take everything in your life to him because everything in your life matters to him. Jesus is Lord over every area of our lives. So he's calling on us to live in close relationship with him day by day, moment by moment even in the knowledge that God is living and active in us. He's not distant. He's not absent. He's not uninterested. He is near to us. 
in Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says that is going to make all the difference when we begin to grasp that reality. So the first of these three commands then is rejoice always. So what are we meant to do with a command like this? Again, is Paul saying that the sign of every Christian is they walk around with a permanent smile on their face or that they are completely unaffected by the things that affect other people? Well, if that's the case, then Paul himself failed the test, and I would imagine most of us here would fail the test too. So we need to think, what does Paul mean and what does he does not mean by rejoicing always? So why don't we rejoice always? I think a few reasons. It's very obvious, life in this world is often hard. And the Bible doesn't hide from that fact. There is so much evidence around us of a broken world, of, of wars and killings and loved ones dying and relationships breaking down and sickness and death. And because of that, it is hard to rejoice always. Paul knows he's saying this. We kind of go, what? Always? Because all we can see around us is our personal circumstances. And when those circumstances are less than ideal, which they often are, when they involve struggle and pain, then we don't rejoice. And even if we're Christians, even if we know that God is there and he loves us, we are naturally forgetful people. We forget who God is and all that he's done for us. So rejoicing always does not come naturally to us. But I want to say you should feel that. If you go, rejoice always, yep, tick, cracked it. I want to talk to you and learn your secrets <laughs> because I actually don't believe there is one beyond what we're going to see in this passage. Because the big question this command asks us is rejoice always. Well, where do I, where do we get our joy from? Do we get our joy from the circumstances of our lives? In which case, this is an impossible command. We cannot rejoice always when we face disappointments and frustrations and loss. But I think that's where the second reading Anne did for us helps us here. Rejoice always. What Paul means by that, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I will say it again, rejoice. You don't get to wriggle out of this one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Where do we get our joy from? Paul says, it is in the Lord Jesus. Find your joy in him. Practice your joy in him and you'll discover a joy that actually lasts in a world where nothing else does. So rejoice always should be understood as rejoice in the Lord always. Only then does it make sense and only then actually is it livable. But again, joy. I think sometimes I wish joy wasn't a requirement of the Christian life. I thought just, well, keep your nose clean, read the Bible, you know, don't ask me to feel anything about it. But actually, Paul is unapologetic. His goal in ministry throughout his letters is to bring people joy. And you can't get away from it in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, we work with you for your joy because it's by faith you stand firm. Or Philippians 1.25, I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So joy is central to the Christian life, says Paul. 
But if we think joy in the Lord Jesus means the Christian life is easy or it's free from struggle, then Paul kind of blows that out of the water too. Because for Paul, he says, joy is something Christians experience despite our circumstances. So Philippians 4, we just read, Paul was writing that in prison, in chains. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, he describes the Christian life as we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich. We have nothing and yet possess everything. Joy is something we experience despite our circumstances, says Paul, because joy is something we experience in the person and work of the Lord Jesus in our lives. 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Find your joy in who Jesus is and all that he does for his people. So we're going to dig down a little into this command. Why is Paul convinced this is good news for us? Why is Paul saying, I'm not just putting another command on you to make your life more difficult? No, this is good news. Well, Paul actually gives us an answer in Philippians 4. And it's very simple, but I think it is life-changing. And it's one I really want us to just chew over the next few minutes and then into the coming week. Philippians 4 again, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And here it comes. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. That is the key to rejoicing in him, that the Lord is near. Now, what does Paul mean by that? There seem to be two meanings he could have had in mind. Is he referring to future hope here? So he's saying the Lord Jesus is near, Adam. He's going to come back very soon. He's going to wrap up history and bring about the new creation. Is that what he means? The Lord is near. Or is he referring to to Jesus' promise that he's with us always? He is close to us here and now. Well, I want to say, actually, I think he means both here. That the Lord is near is both a promise and an invitation. So this is a promise for us. The Lord is near and he will put everything right in the end. Joy for the Christian does not mean we hide from the bad stuff. It means we know the bad stuff will not have the last word. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, your life here and now is not the whole story. Your life is actually heading somewhere. It's not a waste and it's not pointless. It is heading somewhere glorious. And that somewhere is a new creation, won for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we're not always great at planning things at Avenue, so I didn't know Anne was going to read Revelation 21. But here it is again. I love when this happens. But here's how the Apostle John describes the promise that the Lord is coming back. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. The sea stands for chaos and evil in Revelation. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. We are the bride of Christ, John says. 
He loves and desires us as his bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. The Lord is near, Christian, says Paul. Your life here and now isn't the whole story. Jesus has won a glorious future for everyone who trusts in him. And he shares that future with us, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it. He shares it with us because he loves us, because of his amazing grace towards us. And our future hope isn't just a vague sense that everything will kind of be okay in the end. No, our future hope is the personal return of the personal Lord Jesus. The Lord is near, says Paul. God himself will be with us and be our God. It is personal. It is full of love and relationship. I want to see the difference this makes for us. Because without the Lord Jesus, the only joy we will ever experience is what we can make of our lives here and now. Everything depends on us and what we make of our lives. And that actually sounds pretty good at first. When life is good, when we are healthy, when the people we love are happy, when life just about feels under control. But if our joy only ever rests in what we can make of our lives, then our joy will always be fragile. The image that comes to mind is it's like a sandcastle on the beach. I googled sandcastles last night. There were far more impressed ones than this, but this is about my level. But you can work really hard now. You can just build these colossal castles on the beach. But of course, when you're a kid, you realize that moment when the tide comes in. And, and if you're really determined to save it, you're kind of digging trenches and scooping water away and trying. But whatever you do, you can't stop the tide coming in. As beautiful and impressive as you make it, one day it's just going to be swept away by the tide how can Paul say rejoice always? Because the joy he invites us to experience, the joy God invites us to know, is an eternal and lasting joy based on a solid and eternal hope. The Lord is near, which means the best is yet to come when we will see the Lord face to face. Jesus is coming back, so rejoice in the Lord always. He will put everything right in the end, so rejoice in the Lord always. Your life is headed somewhere, so rejoice in the Lord always. A couple of years ago, I came across some words usually attributed to the singer-songwriter John Lennon. John Lennon was not a Christian, not claiming that, but I think he captures something of this. And maybe you've seen this phrase before, but everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Now, from what I know about John Lennon, I think that was a vague, wishful thinking hope. We don't know that he ever got that solidly resting in Christ. But actually, if we put Jesus in the heart of that statement, then actually it's a solid hope. 
And I don't know how all of us are feeling, individuals here are feeling today. Maybe you feel really, it's not okay right now. And the Bible doesn't tell you, God does not tell you, well, just suck it up and rejoice. The Bible does say, this is not the end of the story. I'm not finished with you yet. The Lord is at hand and he is coming back. And when he does, he is going to rejoice over you and embrace you and say, well done, good and faithful servant, as you have falteringly and day by day, step by step trusted in him. The Lord is near. It's a promise. He is coming back and he will put things right in the end. But it's also an invitation. Like all three of these commands are, it's an invitation. And the invitation is this, the Lord is near, so rest in his strength instead of your own. Again, lack of planning, but the old age slot kind of nailed this as well today. So I'm very grateful to God for that. But when Paul urges us to rejoice in the Lord always, he's calling on us to live in constant awareness of just how near the Lord actually is to us. And as a result of that, you can go to him for help. You can cast your anxieties on him. You can talk to him about what is really going on. You're not alone because the Lord is near. You're not abandoned. You're not an orphan in this world because the Lord is near and he is present with you. And he wants you to know that and find joy in that. So how do we experience the nearness of the Lord Jesus? Actually, there's loads of ways we can. Every good gift we enjoy comes from him. It's evidence of his love for us, whether that's a well-cooked meal or a sunset or a phone call with a friend or a run in the park or a car that works. The Lord is near and he loves to give good gifts to his children. But as we've already said, even when life is hard, when the meal is burnt and the clouds blot out the sun and the car breaks down, or more seriously, when we lose a loved one or our bodies start to fail us or a dream we've always had looks like it's never going to happen. We say, but the Lord is near. He knows what I'm going through. He is full of compassion and care for me. He is right there with us. Your joy doesn't depend on what you make of your life. Your joy depends on what Jesus has made of your life. And if you're trusting in him right now, he has, the verdict on your life is you are worth dying for. You're worth everything to him. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's an invitation. It's not something you've got to do. Great, I've got to be joyful now. It's an invitation. And Paul is so confident that if we just look at the Lord and get to know him better and understand more of who he is and what he's done for us, the, the consequence will be joy. Paul's absolutely confident of that. Again, Philippians again, a little bit earlier from, from chapter three, he goes, whatever were gains to me, says Paul, and I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Then a little later, I want to know Christ. Why does he want to know Christ? Because he, 
in one sense because he wants to know the joy that comes with Christ, but he knows that only comes when you know Christ. When you know just how deeply you are loved by him, when you know just how humble he is to give himself fully to rescue you, when you knew he, would, he had a quality with God, but he didn't grasp it, he didn't keep hold of it, he, he made himself nothing. The very nature of a servant went to death on a cross. Why? Because he wanted you to share in his joy. Because he wants you in his family. Because he loves you. Rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is near. So as we finish, where do we go with a command like this? How do we grow in our joy in the Lord Jesus? Just a couple of things as we finish. Um, I think the phrase you've got to fight for it is a genuine one. Um, In my family, I'm the one who doesn't play a musical instrument, and my daughter likes to remind me of this. You're the musically inept one. Um, But actually, I'm suddenly realizing that I didn't play a musical instrument because you involve practice. I just didn't do that as a kid. And I see my son and my daughter, and they they practice. Not not all the time, but they practice, and it gets better. I sit passively going, right, bathe me with joy, Lord. But actually, we do have to fight for it in this world. So fight for joy by drawing near to Jesus. And you might have been sitting here this morning going, rejoice always. How can you command me how to feel? It sounds like an impossible command. But the answer is because the only true giver of joy is offering himself to you. It's not rejoice always on your own, then come and see me when you've cracked it. It's rejoice always. You want to do that? Come near to me. Come close. If you're hungry, then you need to eat something good. And if you lack joy, you need to feast on someone good, the Lord Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you. Joy isn't something you have to achieve in the Christian life. It is something you receive by faith in Jesus, accepting that on your own, you are joyless and you're hopeless. Joy is not something you achieve, it's something you receive by faith in Jesus. And how do we do that? We do it through the ordinary, simple things that Christians have always done over centuries. You read the word of God because you need to know this Jesus who offers you joy. You talk to God in prayer about everything because you need his help. You worship God in community with other believers regularly and you celebrate the Lord's Supper because that's like this tangible sign of just how deeply Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. You fight for joy by drawing near to Jesus and you fight for joy by drawing near to church family. We are meant to be fuel for joy for one another. No pressure. You're meant to fuel my joy and I'm meant to fuel your joy. It's John Stott who comments on these three commands in 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. All of the verbs are plural. These aren't just commands we're called to obey on our own. We're called to obey these commands in community with other people. So as part of a church family, we need to know two things. We need to know that you are needy and you are needed. 
So you are needy as a Christian. You aren't meant to live it on your own. You need other Christians around you, praying for you, spurring you on, asking you questions, encouraging you. You're needy, but you're also needed because those other Christians need you to pray for them and spur them on and encourage them and ask questions of them. So actually, there are other Christians in this room who can only keep going for Jesus by the help you provide in God's purposes. God has work for you to do that only you can do to help fuel the joy of other believers. I've always loved the description of Christian friendship we get in 1 Samuel 23. It's a little exchange between David and his best friend Jonathan. David is on the run for his life. He's living in the wilderness. He's close to giving up. And his friend Jonathan comes and meets with him and it says this, 1 Samuel 23 verse 16, Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him to find strength in God. So when I say a minute ago that we need one another, that doesn't mean we are the saviors. It doesn't mean we get to fix other people's lives. Definitely not. What we do do is we help one another to find strength in God. That is what we're called to do. So keep meeting together, Paul would say. Belong to communities of believers, a home group, a small group. Pray for one another. Sing loudly together. There's always that sense of actually, well, if you don't believe it, you shouldn't sing it. No, no, just sing it. Even if you don't believe it at that moment, sing it loudly for the benefit of other people and for your benefit too. And enter one another's world. Get to know one another. It's our church weekend away in a couple of weeks' time. Um, That is an opportunity to have time together. We're not rushing around as much. So be praying in advance that, how, how can I encourage other people? But also it's not wrong to say, I really need the encouragement of other people. Would they encourage me too? But it works both ways. A few weeks after the church weekend, we're gonna have a praise and testimony Sunday here on the 5th of June. Are there things you could share that Sunday about what the Lord is doing in your life that will bless all of us? We fight for joy by drawing near to Jesus and drawing near to one another. And I think just from that Philippians 4 passage, finally, just meditate on the truth that the Lord is near. Meditation is one of those words that kind of sounds like something only super spiritual Christians do or monks do or nuns do. But basically meditating on scripture, it's just taking a truth, a simple truth like the Lord is near, and you just keep returning to it. And you have it just mulling over your mind. Someone talks about camping out in a bit of scripture or just chewing over it, whichever works better for you. Don't chew your tent, but you know what I mean. But the Lord is near. It takes a while for that to sink down into our hearts. So give it time. Say we're going at a slower pace the next few weeks. Give it time to let these truths sink in and let them refresh and strengthen you. The Lord is near. Your life is headed somewhere. The Lord is near right now. Whatever you're going through, he is with you and he is full of compassion and care for you. And when we grasp those truths, we actually find we can rejoice in him, whatever is going on in our lives. Let me just read those verses from Philippians 4 as we finish. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.